Father, your word tells us your son Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and that with him we can do anything, but apart from him we can do nothing. And so we ask today, Lord, that you would keep us connected to the vine, that we would abide in him as he abides in us and that we would abide in your word as it abides in us, that you would keep us anchored to you, keep us drifting from you. Father, help us today, even in this moment, to renounce any self-sufficiency, any ability to do this on our own. Help us to surrender that to you. Help us to recognize that we are utterly helpless apart from you and we only come to you today on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. That is our only standing before you this morning. So remove from us confidence in ourselves so that we would be wholeheartedly dependent upon and confident in Jesus and what he's done for us. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, will you speak to us now, word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in the truth of your word because your word is truth. Hide it in our hearts now. Let it bear fruit in our lives. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me one more time to the short letter of Jude. Uh, there towards the end of your Bible, third week here in the book of Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, uh, no shame in that. It's only about a page in most Bibles. It can be hard to find. So use your table of contents if you need to, or just go to the end of your Bible, find the book of Revelation, and then right in front of that, you'll find the short letter of Jude. And Jude is a short letter, uh, but it is not an insignificant one. We've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, if you're like a men in black fan from the 90s, Jude is the noisy cricket of the Bible. It's that tiny weapon that nobody wants, but man, once you finally fire it, you see it is loaded. And so uh, Jude is absolutely loaded, and we've seen that together the last couple of weeks. And, and part of, of why I love the book of Jude is because Jude invites us into tension. So the same letter we've seen the last couple of weeks ago that warns us against the dangers of falling away into apostasy, which is living or teaching in a way that contradicts the word of God. The same letter that warns us against falling away is the same letter that promises us that if we are in Christ, he is keeping us and will keep us until the end. We saw last week a tension that Jude shows us about Jesus how yes and amen, Jesus is the savior of sinners, but also we have to recognize that Jesus is the one who executes judgment against sin. And we cannot be guilty of worshiping just our own version of Jesus who is only savior and not judge. We have to worship him for who he is and how he has actually been revealed to us in scripture. And today we're gonna to resolve a tension that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last uh, two weeks ago, we saw that our responsibility of believers is to contend for the faith. So uh, these are fighting words at the beginning of Jude, contend for the faith. So we stand on the truth of the gospel. We stand on the truth of God's word. We stand on the authority of scripture and sound doctrine. But in the same way that we're called to contend for the faith, on the other side of that tension, we'll see this morning that Jude shows us we have to be people who show mercy to those who doubt. So we want to be a both and church. We talked about this a little bit last week. We, we don't want to be an either or church. In the current cultural landscape right now, it's easy to be a church on just on the side of truth. Man, we're going to stand on the Bible. We're going to stand on the word. We're going to stand on sound doctrine. We're not going not to move. We're not going to budge. And yes, we need this. We've got to be anchored to the word of God. But sometimes when we do this, if we're not careful, we will do that at the expense of loving people who have fallen into sin. So then the Bible really becomes a, a hammer that we use to beat people down rather than the words of hope and life that will draw them back in. But in the same way, you can be erring on this side of using truth as a weapon. On the other side of this, you could be at church. It's like, man, we have mercy on the doubter. We welcome the person with questions. We work, welcome the person who's skeptical. We welcome the person who's struggling to believe. But the danger there is that we'll do it at the expense of truth. And what Jude's letter shows us is we cannot be guilty of being an either or church. We've got to be a both and church. We've got to be a church that both contends for the faith that was passed down to the saints. And we need to be a church that shows mercy to those who doubt. 
And when you look across the last few decades of recent church history, few have understood how to navigate the tension of contending for truth and having mercy on the doubter, quite like Dr. Timothy Keller. Um, If you have spent any time in our church, you've heard Tim Keller's name on multiple occasions. I actually just quoted him this past Sunday, usually do six or seven times throughout the course of a year. If you're not familiar, uh, Tim Keller was a longtime founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church right in the heart of New York City. And he's one of the most influential Christian voices of the 21st century, both through his books um, and he was the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Um, and he's just a very prolific influence across modern evangelicalism. And so you, you'd be really hard pressed to find someone who's had greater influence on the modern, modern church than Tim Keller. If I had to put my money on it today, I'd say 50 years from now, we're gonna be looking at Tim Keller possibly as the C.S. Lewis of our generation. His, his impact is gonna be that far reaching. And for the last few years, um, Dr. Keller had been battling pancreatic cancer. And on Friday morning, uh, Tim Keller went home to be with the Lord at the age of 72. And, and if I could just share with you personally and transparently this morning, I'm not sure I've ever been more sad about the death of somebody I never met. Um, my dad passed away 11 years ago. And what, what I've done over the last decade is I've just, I've kind of attached either up personally or from a distance to other spiritual fathers and people who could really keep me grounded in the faith. Many of you will remember Dean and Sarah. Dean came here uh, back in early 2020. He's the author of a book called The Unsaved Christian. And uh, after Dr. Keller passed away Friday morning, Dean tweeted out, it feels like our generation of pastors just lost our pastor. And that's largely how I've felt the last couple of days. I feel like my pastor died on Friday morning. Uh, Because there's no author or pastor outside of the Bible that has shaped me uh, more as a pastor, that has shaped more uh, us more as a church than Dr. Tim Keller. His book, The Reason for God, uh, was the first of his books that I read. It helped me understand how to make a rational and intellectual defense of the Christian faith. His book, The Meaning of Marriage, helped me see that my love for my wife should mirror the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. His book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, just a really short book I'd encourage you to read. Sometimes it's a free download. It helped me to develop a framework for living a life that's centered on the glory of God. And eight years ago, his book, Center Church, was the foundational book that I used in developing the prospectus for Cross Community Church. And that book, that single book, approached uh, our launch and our approach to church planting more than any other resource. His preaching book has shaped my preaching more than any other resource. Because where where Tim Keller really opened my eyes and helped me see things over the last uh, 10, 15 years is, is that we don't have to be either or in our approach to the faith. So so in in preaching the message of the gospel, we don't have to choose between preaching God's love or preaching God's justice. It's not either or, it's both and. We can preach one without compromising the other. We don't have to choose between preaching truth or grace. It's not either or, it's both and. We don't, as a church, have to choose between being an evangelistic church or being a discipling church. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. And so that means we as a church, we don't have to choose between casting a wide net and reaching people or going deep in the word of God. It's a both and. Uh, Very few people like Tim Keller help Christians uh, across the world understand the right frame of mind to read the Bible. And so it's Tim Keller who's really driving forward the last 15 years, the importance of reading the Bible, not through a me-centered lens, but through a Christ-centered lens. He was one of those just clear voices who reminded us all, hey, the Bible's not about us, it's about Jesus. Even the Old Testament's foreshadowing of Christ to come. It's Tim Keller who, who helped a generation of believers understand the centrality of the gospel in all of life. One of my favorite quotes of his, as he once said that uh, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. It impacts everything and it touches everything about our lives. Remember when I got to the end of reading Center Church, the Lord laid two phrases on my heart. He laid two phrases on my heart and those phrases were unconditional love and unapologetic truth. And what I laid before the Lord several years ago, I said, Lord, I want us to be a church that does both. And Tim Keller's work is the one that, that inspired that. And few have been able to both contend for the faith and have mercy on the doubter, just like Tim Keller did. So since the late 80s, this guy plants and pastors for decades a conservative evangelical church right in the heart of New York City. 
And so, so there he is faithfully proclaiming the gospel, standing on the authority of scripture, not dragging his pivot foot, uh, uh, holding on to sound doctrine. And at the very same time, his church was known for welcoming those who were cynical, welcoming those who were skeptical, welcoming those who were doubting, welcoming those who had big questions. And so, so there were so many who drifted into his church building, uh, just seeing Christianity, seeing the message of the gospel as just being intellectually shallow and incompatible. And many of the people who walked through Redeemer Presbyterian church's doors to attack the Christian faith themselves fell in love with Jesus and are now faithfully walking with Christ. Through his ministry, thousands have come to faith in Jesus. And so this morning at the beginning of our time together, I just wanted to take a moment to thank God for the life of Dr. Tim Keller, for his influence in my life, his influence in the life of our church. And he leaves an enduring legacy of gospel faithfulness and lays down a mantle that the rest of us have to pick up. Because church, if we're going to endure what we're facing now and what we're gonna be facing over the next two, three decades, we are gonna have to be a both and church. We are gonna have to be a church that knows how to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we're gonna have to be a church that knows how to show mercy to those who doubt. So what we're gonna see as we wrap up Jude this morning is that we can confidently persevere in our faith because Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling. So Jude warns against apostasy. He warns against drifting away from the truth and preaching a false message. He warns against this. And yet in the same breath that he gives the warning, he also gives us a promise of confidence. Jesus is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. So from the book of Jude, let's read again, verses 17 through 19. Jude writes, but you must remember. Everybody say remember. He said, you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So Jude shows us in these last several verses, first a warning, and the warning is this, watch out for false teachers who cause division. Watch out for false teachers who cause division. Now, if it sounds like I'm repeating that point for the third week in a row, it's because I am. That this is a recurring theme all throughout Jude's letter. It's his primary concern in writing. It's the warning against apostasy, the warning against drifting away from the truth of Scripture, either in our living or in our teaching. So from two weeks back, Jude's primary concern is apostasy. But just because he's repeating this concern doesn't mean that we should hit the, hit the skip button here. You know, it's, it's easy when something gets repetitive. It's like, okay, we, we've kind of heard this already, but apparently we're not the only ones that need this reminder. He's writing to a group of people who needed the reminder. He's calling them, remember what the apostles told you. He's telling them, hey, you were warned about this. You were warned about this. There were gonna be those who crept into the church. There are gonna be those who tried to devour God's people. There are gonna be those who tried to justify sin against the word of God and who are going to distort the word of God to come up with their own message. He's warned against these things. And listen, this is a track that's on repeat all throughout the course of the New Testament. Every single turn of the New Testament is the warning against false teaching. And he tells them in verse 17, you must remember you must remember. So, so listen, just understand, like what we're facing here 2,000 years since these words were written, these are not new things. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. Church, understand, there's nothing that's happening as crazy as our world feels right now, as, as confusing as our world appears to be right now, there's not a single thing that's happening in our world today that has taken God by surprise. Like he's not thrown off by any of it. It's, it's not like he sees something new pop up in your social media feed and he's like, man, didn't see that one coming looking at the Holy Spirit. What are we gonna do about this? Like none of that is going on. And, and these warnings were being given 2,000 years ago. Like don't be surprised about this. But we were warned that this, is gonna, that this was, was going to, to happen. So uh, he tells them to remember the prediction of the apostles. The apostles were those who witnessed the resurrected Christ. And so uh, these are the 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, Judas, of course, fell away. And so this is 12 minus Judas, and then he's replaced by Matthias. This also includes the apostle Paul. It's those who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then were authorized by Jesus to carry out the message of the gospel and the ministry of the word. 
And the apostles had warned them that in the last time, false teachers would arise. This phrase, last time, just refers to the period of time uh, from the extension of Christ into heaven until his second coming. So when Jude wrote these words 2,000 years ago, he was writing in the last time. And you and I are still reading them 2,000 years later in the last time. We're still living within that period. And so this is a warning for us that's just as applicable 2,000 years later as it was for those who originally received the letter. Verse 18, he describes these false teachers as scoffers. They're scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. Throughout scripture, a scoffer is someone who not only mocks the word of God, they mock the people of God with a high degree of arrogance. So it's not just that they reject uh, what scripture says. It's not just they reject the word of God. They insult it in anyone who believes it. And Jude warns in verse 19, it's these, it's that group of people who scoff at the word of God, who deny the authority of what it says, who are guilty of causing divisions. It says, verse 19, they cause divisions, they're worldly people devoid of the spirit. Someone who's worldly means someone who's driven by the natural world and the desires of the flesh. And someone who is devoid of the spirit is someone who literally just does not have the Holy Spirit. So this is someone who's not a believer in Jesus. And so this has been said many times over the last year, but it needs to be reiterated here again today. False teachers are not true Christians. Scripture is plainly clear on this fact. False teachers are not true Christians. So when someone is preaching a false gospel, we don't look at this person as a brother, sister in Christ, who's a good person, just a little bit misguided. We have to approach them as if they're actually an unbeliever. And this is a key distinction for for us to see because the cultural moment you and I are living in today, uh, in many corners, the church at large has gotten this entirely backwards. And and the people who are accused of being divisive are not those who have departed from the truth. In many ways, the people accused of being divisive are those who are just trying to hold on to what Christians have already believed. And so that this is what often happens, that this is what's happening kind of across the spectrum in the church today. You've got a, a big group of people right now that seem to be confusing the kingdom of America with the kingdom of heaven. And they see them sort of as one and the same. Or there are those who deny the exclusivity of Christ. They'll say that Jesus is not the only way to heaven, that he's, he's one of many possible roads to heaven, even though the Bible plainly contradicts this. Or someone chooses a, a sexually alternative lifestyle that goes outside of the sexual ethics of Scripture. Or followers of Jesus Christ who are supporting abortion and lobbying for pro-choice policies. And, and so what ends up happening is, is you get followers of Jesus going, okay, okay time out. This is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and you're, you're departing from this. You're now drifting away from this, and it's the person who's standing on what Scripture says, who's trying to hold on to what the Scripture says, who's accused of being divisive rather than the person who has departed from that truth. Scripture sees it the exact opposite. It is not those who defend the truth. It's those who depart from the truth who are accused of being divisive in the church that their lifestyle, their teaching, it causes unrest. It causes conflict within the body of Christ. And you need to recognize this because if you're going to be a contender for the faith in the 21st century, listen, no matter how delicately you say it, no matter how graciously you say it, no matter how compassionate you are in your words, you're going to be accused of being divisive. You stand for the truth of God's word. You're gonna stand for the sound doctrine and for the truth of scripture. You're gonna be accused of being divisive. You're gonna be called a bigot. You're gonna be called uh, hateful. You're gonna be called arrogant. You know, everybody's got Wikipedia now, so the insults are getting more creative. You're gonna be called a Christo-fascist. Just love for like one person to define that for me. You're gonna be called some things. You're gonna be called some things. This has been one of the biggest changes over the last couple of decades. You're living in a world right now, they're not just going to look at the truth of scripture and say that it is disagreeable and offensive. You're living in a world right now that's going to call it dangerous and abusive. Because we've got you know, the, the, the cultural tone of our day is kind of victim mentality and we've baptized our conversation in the language of secular therapeutics. And so we're gonna get called some stuff, guys. And it's not gonna be fair. It's not gonna be true. It's not gonna be honest. It's not going to be accurate. And, and what would God have us do as they're calling us names and as they're insulting us and as they make false accusations against us, what would God have us do? He would have us bear that reproach. Let them call you names. Let them slander your name. Let them assassinate your character. Let them, let them do all of these things. Remember the words of Jesus, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and slander you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in the kingdom of heaven. What do we do as the world hates us? We love our enemies and we pray for our persecutors. This is what Jesus would have us do. So let them persecute us. Let them do what they're going to do. Defending truth is not divisive. Departing from the truth is. And we need to be those who contend for the truth of scripture because it's not those who defend the truth. It's those who depart from it who are guilty of causing division in the church. And we have to be on guard against them and contend for the faith. Verses 20 and 21, uh, Jude goes on to write this. He says, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we have to be on guard against false teachers who cause division. Second Jude shows us we have to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the command we see in verses 20 and 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now, it's important that we understand where this word keep is used. Because again, you go back to the beginning of Jude's letter. He says that those of us who contend for the faith Uh, We are called beloved and kept by God. So he's already said that we are kept by him. And what we'll see in just a few moments is that Jesus is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. And so you and I are those who keep ourselves in the love of God as God keeps us in his love. The word that's used here for, for keep it, and, it has, and for, for build up, it has to do uh, with somebody who's building on a foundation that has already actually been built. And so our, our keeping, it's not a passive keeping, it's an active keeping. Yes, God is going to keep us. We are kept in him. He's going to keep us until the end. And yet as he keeps us, we are also called to keep ourselves in love. And there's a few specific ways that Jude calls us to do this. We keep ourselves in the love of God by building up our faith. He says, build yourself up in the faith. Again, the verb that's used here means to build on something already built. So as followers of Jesus, here's the thing, like we don't get to take any credit whatsoever for our salvation. This is like the one thing that's plainly clear in scripture from start to finish. We're the ones that do the saving and Jesus is the one that does this. We do the sinning and Jesus does the saving, amen? Like, that, like it's plainly clear, like we don't get credit for this. Ephesians chapter two, you are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's all a gift of God so nobody can boast. And this is what's so humbling about that is that means even the faith that was required to call on Jesus for salvation is not something we did ourselves. Like the bank account of our heart was completely overdrawn. We were utterly, completely spiritually, morally bankrupt. The bank account of our heart was overdrawn and God in his grace and his mercy and his kindness, without our permission, gave us a direct deposit of faith so that we could call on him and be saved. We get to take no credit for any of these things. So when, when, when he writes to build yourself up in the faith, don't take that in any way to mean that we're somehow working for salvation because we can't. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. So our keeping is not a passive keeping. It's an active keeping. We build ourselves up in the faith. And this is how we mutually support one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers or pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For what purpose? For building up the body of Christ. How long do we do this for? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Everybody say grow up. He says we are to grow up in every way. Everybody say every way. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's the Apostle Paul, master of the run-on sentence. This is a call to maturity in Christ. 
It's a call to maturity in Christ. Grow up in every way into Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're after. And you might hear that this morning, that the challenge to grow in your faith, the challenge to maturity. You might say, well, yeah, but Taylor, doesn't Jesus also say that we should have the faith like a child? Like, yes and amen. Like Matthew 18, Jesus says that we, we have to have the faith of children. We should come as children before our Father. We trust him for everything. We believe in him for everything. We have confidence in him. We know that our dad is big, right? Like, like that's, that's the type of confidence that, God, that Jesus calls us to have in the Father. We want to have childlike faith. But here's where I think sometimes we get it confused. There's a difference between having faith that is childlike and having faith that is childish, We are absolutely called to have childlike faith. We are called to grow out of childish faith. You see, childlike faith believes God for anything, trust God for everything. Childish faith will fall for anything. If it sounds right, we run after it. If it feels good, we do it. If it appears to be true, then it must be true. And that's childish faith. That's what Paul's calling us out of. That's what Jude is calling us out of. This is a call to maturity in Christ. Building up our faith means to grow up in every way. So it means studying scripture so that we can be rooted in truth. It means studying sound doctrine so that we know how to refute error and lies. It's being prepared to give a rational defense for what we believe and why we believe it. It's learning to discern truth from error. And Charles Spurgeon once said, when it comes to discernment, he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And man, there's a lot of almost right in the modern church today. And we need the wisdom of God's word. We need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who will guide us into truth. Christ has established faith in our hearts and we're called to build up on that foundation. Next, Jude shows us that we keep ourselves in his love by praying in the Holy Spirit. So this stands in contrast to verse 19. False teachers, we're told in verse 19, are devoid of the Spirit. Believers are called to pray in the Spirit. As believers, we have the everlasting benefit of God's presence dwelling within us. In John 16, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper who will guide us into truth. So, so again, I know every single one of us who've attempted to read the Bible at some point in time, we've run into some stuff that's made us go, no clue what's going on here. Just absolutely no clue what's going on here. It's easy to feel lost and you just kind of want to give up and close it up and walk away. It's like, I'll just, I'll just let the pastor, the community group leader, whoever it is, I'll just I'll listen to the podcast guys. Like, I'll, just, I'll just let them kind of explain it because this is way too big for me. And, and listen, like absolutely, yes, like supplement your faith with resources and the teaching of others, but don't forget the one who authored and inspired scripture dwells within you today. The author's present with you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have a Bible and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to understand the word of God. Last night, my boys uh, were watching Spider-Man. And, um, and, and so uh, yeah, they're upstairs and I, I popped in for just a second. It's, it's the scene where some, some danger starts to come in. And, and what does Peter Parker experience anytime danger is near? What, is, what, what special sense does he have as Spider-Man? He's got a spidey sense, right? And so the hair on his arm kind of stands up and he recognizes dangers nearby and then he causes a distraction, then he changes into his suit and then he goes and fights the bad guys. You know, as followers of Jesus, we have a spirit sense. And, and so listen, whether, and this is true for you, whether you've been a follower of Christ for five minutes or you've been following Jesus for 50 years, th- th- this, is, this is true for you, is even if you can't fully articulate it, I know you've probably experienced something where, man, you, you're reading something or you're hearing something or somebody's teaching or preaching something, and even if you can't quite articulate what it is, there's something within you going, I don't know about that. And man, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. That's him doing what Jesus promised he was going to do, is to guide you into truth, to help you see. And so, so don't ignore that, that sense. And that's why we pray in the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray that the indwelling presence of the Spirit within us is why we pray to stay in tune with the Spirit. We're praying, Lord, keep me anchored to the truth of your word. Spirit, guide me away from error. Guide me into truth. Guide me away from lies. Guide me away from evil and from temptation and from sin. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So we keep ourselves in his love by continually praying in the Spirit. Next, Jude shows us we keep ourselves in his love by waiting for his mercy. By waiting for his mercy. What Jude has in view here is the ultimate mercy that you and I will experience on the last day when we see Jesus face to face. 
Richard Baxter was a Reformed uh, Puritan pastor from the 17th century, and uh, his most famous book is The Reformed Pastor, and it continues to be a gold standard for training and pastoral ministry today. And while Baxter had a prolific ministry, what many don't know about him is that he also suffered um, from debilitating chronic pain. Um, He suffered from migraines, he had kidney stones, he had irregular bleeding, he had swollen feet, he suffered through horrible toothaches. And in his book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, he shared the secret to what sustained him through all of this. He shared in this book that every morning for 30 minutes, he would sit in silence and think about heaven. And that's what carried him through. He said, the prayer I pray more than any other is, oh Lord, increase my delight in you. Friend, how often do you think about heaven? How often do you think about heaven? This is something that I think burdens me for my generation in particular more than than maybe anything else. Is guys, we're we're just not really good at all (laughs) at just being still before the Lord. We're really, really bad about just actually fully disconnecting from, from people and from situations and for goodness sake, from these devices. There is something that is constantly competing for our attention. But we're glued to these screens and we just invite the anxiety and the stress and the anger and the depression. Like we just invite all of it into our lives. We let it sleep right next to us at night but we just have all of it there. And so we really, really struggle to fully disconnect from these things and just be present before the Lord, to think about the Lord, to think about heaven. You know, Facebook released statistics last year from 2022. They revealed that the average user spent about 20 hours a month on the app. And that's just one social media platform. It's about 20 hours a month on there. And that averages out to about 30 to 40 minutes a day. And man, I just wonder this morning, like how might our lives change? Maybe if it even wasn't every single day, how might your life change if once a week you just called a timeout for 30 minutes to meditate on the Lord and to think about heaven? What if instead of scrolling TikToks and binge watching the next show and hunting the next bit of gossip, what if we turned it all off and made it a regular practice to sit in silence and think about heaven? How might your heart and your mind be calmed if daily you had the discipline of pausing to think about God's mercy and to think about heaven, to remember that one day this anxiety and depression is gonna be no more. That one day there's not gonna be another school shooting. One day there's not gonna be any more cancer. One day moms aren't gonna miscarry anymore. You're gonna be completely free of sin and it's because you're forever gonna be in the presence of Christ. How might our approach change? How might our mindset change? How might our lives change if we made it a personal discipline to think of God's mercy, to wait for his mercy, and to think often of heaven? So we learn what it means to wait for his mercy. Verses 22 and 23, Jude carries out this theme of mercy. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So third, Jude shows us this morning, instructs us to have mercy on those who struggle with doubt. Now, when Jude addresses those who doubt, this is both a a reference to those who mislead others into error, and it's a reference to those who have been misled by error. And so this is important for us to see because what Jude shows us here is that even as we confront false teachers for their error, even as we confront them for their divisiveness, even as we confront them for immoral lifestyles or for false doctrine, even as we confront them in these things, our ultimate desire for them should be that they repent of their sins and they come back to the truth. That that's what we should want more than than anything else. But we have to remember that, that man, it's, it's easy when someone's done something that's really angered you or you feel like, man, that person's just living in rampant wickedness, they're getting away with it. It's, it's easy for us to pray the Lord smite them type of prayer, right? Like just take them out, just clear them out. God, like the imprecatory Psalms, like those are easy for us to pray, right? You feel those in traffic every single day. Wouldn't get mad if your car got hit by lightning, just being honest, right? Like it's easy to pray those things in those moments and what we so, so quickly forget when people have angered us, when people do things that are divisive, when they lead others into error, we so quickly forget that we too were in need of God's mercy. That when we were in sin and rejection of God, when we were in rebellion against God, that God did not crush us. He sent his son to be crushed for us. And we received mercy. 
And so that's our ultimate aim for, for those, even for those who, who have led others astray and who are guilty either with their living or their teaching of drifting into apostasy. Our prayer for them should be that God in his mercy would draw them back to repentance so that they could come to a knowledge of the truth. And man, if we're called to show mercy, even on those who have corrupted the faith, how much more should we show mercy to the person who's desperately trying to hold on to truth, but is just really struggling with some big questions? That's what's important to see about these verses 22 and 23 is is Jude shows us that we, we need to draw some distinctions about the type of people that we're working with. Because understand, there's a universe of difference between the false teacher who is maliciously misleading people into error There's a big difference between that person and the person who's desperately trying to follow Jesus but can't seem to get past their doubts. We deal with these types of people in very, very different ways. Uh, John Calvin once said, uh, he said this to pastors, but I think this applies to every follower of Jesus Christ. He said, a pastor needs two voices. You need one voice for calling in the sheep and then you need another voice for driving off the wolves. And so this is why we need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why we need the wisdoms of, God, of God's word. It's to help us see, man, who am I dealing with right now? Am I dealing with a sheep who is wandering and straying and needs me to draw them in? Or am I dealing with a wolf who's trying to make his way in to devour the sheep? We need the wisdom to know the difference. Because again, if you try to treat a sheep like a wolf, you're gonna end up causing maybe irreparable harm. But if you treat a wolf like a sheep, you're gonna let destruction come into the church. We need wisdom and discernment to understand the type of person that we're dealing with. Maturity requires knowing the difference. And so here's again the tension of Jude, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. That's calling in the sheep. But then back in verse three, contend for the faith. That's driving off the wolves. Again, this was a hallmark of Tim Keller's ministry at Redeemer Presbyterian. And right there from the heart of New York City, Keller faithfully upheld the gospel He faithfully upheld sound doctrine. He guarded it against error. And yet at the same time, the church welcomed the doubters. They they welcomed the drifters and the skeptics and the seekers. They welcomed the hard questions. They welcomed the doubts. And that's who we should be as believers. And listen, I would just say, man, if that's you today, if you're you're in here, you're like, man, I I want to believe. I'm trying to believe, but I'm just struggling with doubt. I'm not sure what's true. And I'm I'm just feeling things out. Listen, we, we have a place for you here. Our God is big enough to handle your hard questions. He is big enough to handle your hard questions. And for way too long, uh, those who struggle with doubt have been lumped like into the same category with false teachers in some ways that has caused significant harm. God can handle your hard questions. The Christian, Christianity and, and, and the message of scripture, listen, this has been up against scrutiny for two millennia now, and it has endured every form of scrutiny and opposition and persecution you could hope to throw at it. And it still stands God can handle your doubts. He can handle your biggest questions. It's one of the most overlooked ministries of the church. It's the pursuit of those who are wandering from the truth. Jude says, when we do this, friends, we snatch them out of the fire. Like that's the mission that the Lord has entrusted to us is man, we see brothers and sisters or we see struggling doubters drifting towards the cliff. The Lord has given us, commissioned us, sent us out to pull them back in, to save them, to rescue them. How quickly we forget that eternity is at stake in our work. Which leads us to a lack of of urgency in in our mission. We should be running with urgency to brothers and sisters who are struggling and falling away. I always love how the book of James ends. This is how James wraps up his letter. He writes, my brothers, if any among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, listen to this. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a ministry the Lord has given us. And that's what he calls us to be. It's to pursue the one who's fallen away. We love this picture in scripture of Jesus being the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And here are some ways I think we've really, really erred just as modern believers, is that instead of leaving the 99 to go after the one, we gossip about the one who left and brag about our 99% retention rate. That is not who Jesus calls us to be. When we see brothers and sisters drifting, when we see them wondering, listen, when when you see them posting something concerning online, how about instead of gossiping about it, you go after them? If you're really concerned about them, sharing it as a prayer concern, masking gossip, go go after them. It's, It's sad, if you think of the church as a boat, 
And if we have those who go overboard and fall in the water, our call is to throw them a life preserver. And, and man, unfortunately, in many ways, instead of throwing people a life preserver, we've we hit them with a missile. We've taken them out. We are called to have mercy on those who doubt. And we show mercy with fear, verse 23, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Just very quickly here, similar to last week, here Jude makes a pretty obscure Old Testament reference. In Zechariah chapter three, verses one through four, the high priest Joshua is accused and condemned by Satan because he's wearing unclean garments. But he does this in the presence of the Lord and the Lord rebukes Satan for this. And he protects Joshua, he defends Joshua, and he removes his soiled garments, he removes his dirty garments, and he clothes him in clean garments, and he stands up for him. He says, that's my guy, Satan. He was like, he's a brand plucked from the fire. That's my guy, you will not speak accusation against him. And he stands up for him. And what this is, is a picture, not just for false teachers, but for everybody who drifts from the truth. Listen, no matter what you drift into, no, no matter how ugly the false teaching gets, no matter how ugly your sin gets, no matter how filthy you think your life is, there's no amount of sin, there's no measure of sin that you can commit that is greater than the grace and the mercy of God. That's the invitation today. Is like no matter how dirty your life looks, it is no match for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That this is the very, very good news of the gospel is that God is way, way better at saving than you and I are at sinning. That no matter how great our sin gets, God's grace and his mercy are always one step ahead and your sin is absolutely no match for the mercy of God. So please hear this this morning. No matter how big your questions are, no matter how big your doubts are, no matter how great your sin, the dirtiest parts of you are absolutely no match for the cleansing righteousness of the mercy of God. Because of the great mercy he's shown us, we show great mercy to those who struggle with doubts. In verses 24 and 25, here's how Jude concludes the letter. I think one of the most beautiful expressions of worship in all of scripture. Jude writes, now to him who is able. Everybody say able. He's able. Now to him who is able to do what? To keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to do what? To present you blameless. Everybody say blameless. Oh, that's good news. That's really, really good news. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So fourth and finally this morning, Jude shows us, calls us to worship the Savior who keeps you from stumbling. Worship the Savior who keeps you from stumbling. Jude has two glorious bookends that introduce and conclude this letter. We started two weeks ago. If you are in Christ, you are called, you are beloved, and you are kept. And then we saw last week, happy Mother's Day, by the way, warning of God's judgment, right? Sorry, moms. That's where we landed. Warning of God's judgment. I mean, that's, that's, that's heavy, that's heavy and it's, it's easy to, to be overcome with fear. It's like, man, I don't wanna drift away. I don't wanna fall away. I don't wanna be pulled away by lies and deception and sin. And so that's why he closes again with comfort. Don't forget you are kept and he is able to keep you. Because we are kept, he is able to keep us from stumbling. So that's the makeup of the letter. We are called and kept and we're called to keep the faith. And then the warning against apostate living and teaching. And now once again, the comforting reminder, he's able to keep you from stumbling. Again, it's, it's so easy, especially after the text we studied last week, to be uneasy. It's like, oh my goodness, there's so many lies. There's so much deception. There's so much manipulation. It's so easy to drift away. Gosh, we're, we're afraid of our own hearts, right? Of our own sin and our own desires and how easily we could be pulled away and so we can become afraid. Like, I don't wanna fall into error. I don't wanna be deceived by lies. I don't wanna fall into sin. I don't wanna be misled by false teachers. This is the good news announcement of the gospel. Your faith is not contingent on your ability to hold on to Christ. It's contingent on his ability to hold on to you. If you are in him, you are kept. And he's able to keep you from stumbling. I love this. This is just, I mean, boom. From, from Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. This is incredible. He said, for God to de-resurrect you, to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You're that safe. 
If you're in Christ, he's keeping you. He's keeping you and he's not letting you go. Because you are kept by him, he's able to keep you to the end. I feel like this is every conversation I have with parents right now. And again, I'm, I'm a parent. I've got three boys. They're 10, 8, and 6. I feel like every conversation I have with a parent right now, it's just the, the worry. Man, we're just worried sick about the culture our kids are growing up in. There's so many lies. There's so much deception. There, there's such an obviously anti-Christ agenda that, that's being imposed against them. You know, just, just the other day, I, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I came across the page of a former student of mine that Emily and I led um, just about 10, 11 years ago when we were up in Charlotte. And you know, just another example, she, she's now living a, a sexually alternative lifestyle. She's, she's completely rejected the faith that she was raised in. And, and it's, just, it's just devastating every time you see it happen. I feel like every single day you hear one of these new stories of, of someone who's, who's just walking away from it all to pursue something different. And, and every time it happens, it just makes me go deeper in prayer. I'm, I'm pleading to the Lord for my kids and I'm pleading to the Lord for your kids. Emily and I regularly pray for our boys that the Lord would set them apart as righteous and holy in their generation, that they would be led by his spirit, that they would be mighty, that they would be strong, that they would be courageous, that he would keep them anchored in the truth. But, but understand, even as we pray for our kids to be protected from the evil schemes of Satan, we should not be praying that we keep them sheltered from the world. Because in the same breath that we pray for the Lord to set our boys apart as holy and righteous is because one day we know we're going to send them out. So I don't just want my boys set apart. I want them sharpened so that they will be formidable weapons in the Lord's hands as they pierce the heart of darkness. That's what I desire for us. And there's just so much to wade through in, in all this. You know, over the last several years, we've seen the increased rise of religious nuns. Every single day, it seems like you hear another deconstruction or deconversion story. And, and again, it's learning to, to nuance this a little bit. There are some who have wandered from the church to pursue their own sinful desires. But church, we also have to acknowledge that there are many who have wandered from the church because the church chased them away. If we're, if we're gonna gain ground, if we're gonna regain some ground that we have lost here over the last decade in particular, our generation of the church is going to have to honestly reckon with the fact that there is an entire flock that has gone missing and in many ways, it's largely our fault. Because either we contended for the truth, but we didn't have mercy on the doubter, or we had mercy on the doubter, but we didn't contend for the truth. Because we tried to be an either or church, because we try to be either or Christians instead of both and churches, instead of both and Christians. A lot of this has happened on or watch. And we, we have out there, there's a whole missing flock of people who love Jesus, who love his word, but they have been so hurt by the church. They've been so harmed by the church. They're terrified. And we have to recognize they're not coming back to us. We have to go get them. And that's gonna mean honestly acknowledging some ways that we failed. It's gonna mean agreeing with them in the ways the church has maybe historically harmed them or caused some issues. And so we, we have to understand the moment that the Lord has placed us in uniquely right now to be instruments of his glory for the good news of, of the gospel. And so, so listen, I say this to our staff a lot, and I just want this to, to mark our congregation. Church, I want us to be aware of the challenges that are happening in our world. Like you need to be aware of the lies. You need to be aware of the deception. You need to be aware of the manipulation. You're living in a world right now that wants to scream at the top of its lungs that two plus two equals five and calls you crazy if you don't believe it. And, and, and so like, that's, that's what we're living in. You need to be aware of what's happening. You need to know how to engage this stuff as a follower of Jesus. But while I want us to be a church that is aware, I never want us to be a church that is afraid. And that's where I fear a lot of us are. It's the awareness of the issues has led us to this posture of fear. And so language you hear tossed around a lot right now is that America is a post-Christian nation. We're a post-Christian nation. I want you to hear me say this morning, I categorically reject that language outright. As long as the tomb is empty, nothing is post-Christian. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in our world. It doesn't matter how dark it gets in our community, how dark it gets in our country. As long as the tomb is empty, we are never post-Christian. We are always pre-revival. And so we could take one of two postures as we face all of this over the next few decades. You could take a posture of fear. And this is what you hear on the news all the time. Some of y'all just need to turn that junk off because you're just living in fear and you're constantly just being consuming information that's keeping your eyes off of Jesus. So on the one side, you just take this posture of fear and just constantly mourning and bemoaning how the sky is falling. 
So that's one by like, we can take the posture of fear and whine about how the sky is falling or as resurrection people, we take a posture of faith and instead of whining about how the sky is falling, we plead for God to tear the heavens open and pour out revival and awakening. Not a posture of fear, it's a posture of faith because no matter how ugly it gets out there, no matter how messy it gets out there, the Jesus who saved us is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. I refuse to walk around on eggshells when the God who dwells within me can keep me from falling. I want us to run. I want us to run. I want us to sprint to the glory of God and to live in the tension of contending for his truth and having mercy on those who doubt. We have to be both. Church, make no mistake, the days are dark, but our God is able. We have to contend for the faith and we have to have mercy on those who doubt. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He is going to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to him and him alone, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. As we close together this morning, we do what we did a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're gonna recite together uh, the words of the Apostles' Creed. We're gonna, we're gonna confess our faith together as a church, that the essentials of, of the gospel message, things that we have to be able to hold on to that the truth that we have to contend for as we engage this world that needs this good news message. And so these words are gonna be on the screen. I encourage you to read these aloud with me. Let's confess our faith together as believers as we close today. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit the holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We contend for these things. So fathers, we close together this morning as we reflect on what you have laid for us as a foundation of truth. Lord, keep us anchored to truth and make us sensitive to the needs of this world. Help us to be a both-and church. Help us to hold tightly to your word and help us to have big hearts for people who need you. As we come to the table this morning, as we remember and we reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, help us to come to you confessing our own sin and shortcomings. Give us a heart of true and genuine repentance that we would turn from our sins and we would run to you. And help us to leave this place running towards your glory, confident that you were able to keep us from stumbling. Guard us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we engage a lost and dying world and strive to infuse the hope of the gospel in broken places and broken hearts. So Father, as we pray and as we sing, as we confess, as we repent, as we respond today to your word, will you be glorified in the worship and the praise of your people. Let it come from genuine hearts, set on fire for you and your glory. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, everyone said, amen, amen.